Hello, this is John Bowling, and thank you for listening to the Franklin First United Methodist Church podcast. I hope you enjoy this and find it encouraging and inspiring. If you'd like to check us out online, go to www.franklinfirstumc.com. I want to read some scripture that actually takes place in the Gospel of John before Thomas has in his encounter and before the disciples have their encounter with the risen Jesus. So I'm looking at John 20, beginning with verse 19. These are just a few verses that I want to read, and they are filled with meaning, filled with implication. Uh, we could do a couple of messages, several lessons uh, on these verses. And, and I want to focus on something uh, specific this morning. Very often we'll hear a sermon about the peace be with you from this passage. Uh, or this appears to be very similar to uh, the commissioning of the, of, the, of the 12 in Matthew 28. Uh, but I want us to think about something else. So in verse 19, <coughs> excuse me. On the evening of that first day of the week, it's a Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Uh, you may have heard this story before, that a gentleman was having trouble sleeping, having bizarre dreams, and he decided to go to a psychiatrist because it was troubling him so. And he said to the psychiatrist, Doc, every night when I go to sleep, one night I will dream that I myself am a wigwam out in the wilderness. Another night, I'll dream that I'm a teepee in the desert, and it's tearing me apart. I don't get it. I don't understand what it means. And the doc said, well, it's obvious. You're too tense. <laughs> Listen, they, 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 they've been telling that joke in the Catskills for 75 years. All right, for crying out loud. I think it's funny. It's the worst joke and the funniest joke at the same time. Think about, if you will, what the disciples must have felt like. I, I know I'm losing a check this month. I'm, I just have a feeling. Uh, after his crucifixion, the disciples were locked there in the upper room. And I want you to imagine what they were thinking, what they might have been feeling as they were in that place. We know nothing really about the upper room. Now, if you travel to Israel today, you can visit a church built, I believe, by the Crusaders, and it's called the Upper Room, and it is a place of, of worship, but we don't really know about that original room. Was it small? Was it large? Uh, did they rent it out for a couple of weeks, for a month? Was it borrowed? There, there's just a lot of things, a lot of questions we have about that Upper Room, but if nothing else, they, they felt safe there. This is the place where they had the Last Supper with Jesus. And so it was certainly a place where they would have, have felt close to him by being in that place. 
and they were confused because they were hearing stories about appearances of a risen Jesus. Was it a hoax? You know, the, the high priest might have started that rumor just to get the disciples going and then they would be even more devastated when they found out it wasn't true. Or, or perhaps there were those who did not like the Jewish people. They started that rumor so that the governing authorities, the Roman authorities would get angry and, and perhaps be more severe with the people. Certainly the disciples were not immune to superstition, so perhaps they thought that maybe this is a spirit, an apparition, uh, a ghost, if you will, of Jesus. But then suddenly it happens. Jesus appears before them. He startles, he frightens the disciples. He asks them, why are you troubled? Why are you questioning, is he alive in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, it is I myself. It was almost too good to be true. He really was alive and now he was with them right there in that room. But, but before that moment, before Jesus appeared, they were questioning the reality of the resurrection. They were doubting, they were tense, they were edgy, they were anxious about their future. And I think that's where many people are today, those inside the church, those outside the church. We may be a follower of Jesus, but we are anxious, tense about the future, stressed out about what may lie behind the next corner. Yes, there are people today that are too tense. We needed that about five minutes ago when I told that terrible joke. It's been over 50 years since W.H. Auden, the poet, wrote that poem describing how man was searching to find substance and identity in a shifting and increasingly industrialized world. Do you remember the name of the poem? Age of Anxiety. Fifty years later, we could still use that phrase to describe us and where we are, could we not? It's an age of anxiety. Perhaps every age is an age of anxiety. An early missionary to Tierra del Fuego, which is at the tip of South America, tells how every morning where he was living and serving, the natives would arise in that barren place and greet the sunrise with piercing howls and shrieking laments. Why would they do such a thing? It seemed to be a strange act or right. But later he learned that among so much misery crowded into the lives of the Fuegans, they viewed each new day with horror. Every sunrise as the beginning of simply another day to experience evil. I dare say that many of us face the day with dread. I've heard people say it. Sometimes they've laid in their bed at night. Doesn't matter if they're married or single or have children or not, they have said to themselves, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go. Re release me. It's, it's just too much, more than I can bear. And then they're disappointed when they wake up the next day. We may not shriek or howl, but in our own way, we have a similar, many of us, deep sense of apprehension about today or tomorrow. As one philosopher put it, they that live in fear are never free. 
Again, I say we can easily identify with the anxious, fearful disciples of Jesus. They were hovering nervously in the upper room, and I hope you caught that phrase, that the doors were shut. I think I'd want the doors to be open. We have good news to proclaim. God is almighty and powerful. He has sent his Messiah, but they weren't ready for that yet. They'd heard, but they weren't believing. They were doubting. They were anxious and afraid. And so they locked the door to the upper room. And that happens, and it can happen to a person and to the heart of a person. Can it? We, we shut the door to our heart. I've seen people do that to a sibling, to a parent. Perhaps a spouse dies, and we're going to close the door to our heart, never to let ourselves love another person again. Sometimes we, we put Jesus in our heart when we become a Christian, and then we shut the door. You know, I have everything I need. I know all I need to know. And so I can't help but wonder if perhaps they were there inside those shut, locked doors out of fear of rumors. The scripture does say that they were there out of fear from the Jews. And that passage of scripture absolutely has been used to justify anti-Semitic behavior and words. But there is no evidence, according to the scripture or any other evidence that the Jews were out for the disciples. I think they thought once they crucified Jesus, it was all over because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And we're not talking about the Jews as a people anyway. We're talking about the Sanhedrin in one place at one specific time. So there is no evidence that there would be any more violence toward anyone else other than what had already taken place the beating and the crown of thorns and the crucifixion of Jesus. But certainly there were rumors because you know how people like to talk. There were going to be people who were asking questions and giving answers even to things they did not know. Lisa can verify this. We had a gentleman come to one of our churches years ago and he was an older gentleman. Actually he was, he was younger than he appeared but he he was worn, he was disheveled, his hair was mussed up, you could, you could look, he was wearing glasses and they were old and he had done some self repairs there. And people at the church, we would hope that people in any church would welcome any person into their congregation on a Sunday morning and people welcomed him. He made a comment to an adult woman following worship after uh, the benediction and people left the building. Uh, nothing inappropriate about his comment, but this woman came back inside to tell me that she knew this man must be a child molester. So that night, just a few hours later, when it was time for our evening worship service, what do you think folks were talking about? The pervert that came to church that morning. Now, there were a few of us that did some investigative work. He had shared his name that morning. We went to the police, 
We went to the websites where you can find those who are child offenders. And you know what? We never saw Bill's face or name. His sheet was clean. He had moved to our community because his sister lived there, and he was coming to live with his sister. That's how quick nonsense and rumors can get started. And I know sometimes we like to say, well, I didn't say it. Yeah, well, we didn't say anything to discourage it either. Or sometimes we like to say it with our eyes. Have you heard that? We like to foster rumor and innuendo, half-truths and hearsay. Of course, we've perfected the rumor mill. It's called the Internet. I know that Elvis is alive. Is everyone aware of that? He did not die in August of 1977. I have seen his picture on the Internet. President Obama was sworn into the Senate on a Koran. Lady Gaga is a hermaphrodite. If you use a cell phone at a gas station, you will blow up. The song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, was written as a code of affirmation of certain uh, theological principles in the early days of the church when people couldn't read. Starbucks refuses to serve military their brand of coffee in Iraq and a man trying to commit suicide actually saved his life by shooting himself in the head and the bullet hit an unbeknownst tumor that was in his brain and it flew out the other side. <laughs> Everything I just told you is on the internet. Every one of them. So they must be true, right? Not one of those things is true. Not one. Sometimes we like to believe the worst. Sometimes we want to believe what we want to believe, if it makes sense or not. And so I think one of the reasons the disciples were hovering behind locked doors is because they were afraid of rumors, of what people may have said or what they might say. But I think they were also there because they had a temporary lack of faith. Now these were not atheists Jesus called to be his disciples. These were ones who knew the scriptures, the Old Testament, as we know it. They were familiar with the story of Moses and Joshua, of Job, other heroes of the Old Testament. They were with Jesus for three years. They had heard him teach. Three of them were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember when Jesus turned white and all of his clothes were glowing and Moses and Elijah appeared there with him. You know, that doesn't happen every day. It was an affirmation that he was the one. How many times had he told them or how many times had, he heard, had they heard Jesus say to the others, be not afraid? Someone did a study and said that phrase in one form or another is used 366 times in the Gospels. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Perhaps you remember the nobleman of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. He worked for many years as a shoemaker in prison. And later in life, whenever he got into problems, he went up into a little dark room in his attic and began to make shoes. Under stress, under anxiety, under confusion, something like that can happen to us. We temporarily misplace our faith and retreat. There are times when I am 
angry. It's usually when my sister-in-law is visiting. Just want to keep honking that horn to irritate her, but that's not really true. But there are, there are times in my life when I'm aggravated and when I'm stressed out, I want to do what I used to do 20 years ago, and that's go to the liquor store. I can't do it because I'll never leave. And it's not just my faith, it's also the faith of others, my wife and other friends who pray for me and lift me up, the church, the community of faith. Now, I never like reducing scriptural principles to bumper stickers. We do that a lot. And, and sometimes those statements really say something and sometimes they're just really shallow. But a few years ago, uh, I, I liked this. We, you would see it on uh, you know, something to hang in your bathroom at Cracker Barrel or you might find it on something at a Christian bookstore. Let go and let God. Now, now I like that. Don't, don't mistrust. Don't doubt. Just believe. Just trust the Lord. Your, your life, your days are in His hands. So just let go of worry and frustration and anxiety. There is a name for a certain field of medical study and observation, psychoneuroimmunology. I didn't get that out in the first service. I'm very proud of myself. You may applaud if you'd like. Thank you. Psychoneuroimmunology. Norman Cousins brought that to our attention. I can't believe you clapped. Norman Cousins brought that to our attention after he was diagnosed with an illness and began watching Marx Brothers tapes and he was laughing and he ended up writing a book about the healing nature of laughter but others have studied this also having a positive outlook during illness can promote health or do the exact do the exact opposite if you are negative about your recovery then you may not live as long as you would have otherwise now when my sister my oldest sister died of cancer. She was under no illusions. And it was clear death would come from cancer. And I remember at the funeral home, there were several folks saying, but she had such a positive attitude. And there was one, and there was one guy there who said something like, well, it didn't really help her at all now, did it? I wanted to punch his lights out right there at, at the funeral home. Uh, but Lisa did it for me, so it all worked out. And, and I thought, well, it, it, it made her life better. She, she knew she was going to die. Why have a negative outlook about it? She still had time with her children, with her husband, with her friends, and with her family. I remember you know, one of the last things she was able to do was go to a reunion at Kentucky Wesleyan where she graduated from college. And she was in a wheelchair, and she wore a wig, but she went. And she had a great time. Now, we're not just talking positive stuff here. We're talking about our Savior, Jesus, who changes our outlook on the way we experience life and live life. So if I know that evil, that sin, that death cannot rob me of any joy, eternal joy that I might experience, why would I be negative about anything that I might face? We are Easter people, friends. And that affects not just our view of death, it also affects our view of life. Henry Ward Beecher once said, every day has two handles. 
We can take hold of it with the handle of anxiety or the handle of faith. And I think the disciples had taken hold of the handle of anxiety. They were behind those closed doors, perhaps because of the proliferation of rumors. They were there because they had temporarily lost their faith. But they also felt abandoned. Of course they did. They, they, they felt lost without their leader, sheep without a shepherd. Where was he now? Was his body stolen, absent from the flesh? In one of her books, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Maya Angelou talks about her childhood reflecting as an adult on her childhood as a black girl growing up in the South, shuffled back and forth between her parents and grandparents and step-parents. And she writes, reflecting on it many years later, of all the needs a lonely child has, the one that must be satisfied if there is going to be any hope is the unshakable need of an unshakable God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? An unshakable need and an unshakable God. That is the God that we worship and bow before every time we gather in this place. Not just God, a God, a generic being, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we encounter the Trinity in this passage from John 20, don't we? We encounter God the Father who sent His Son to put a face on His love, to teach us and to let us know that there is a Creator, that none of us are some cosmic accident. And He breathes on them the Holy Spirit, power for living. Sometimes people ask me about things that I say in a sermon, was that true? Which is one reason I spend a little extra time in my preparation in footnoting things that I say. Because somebody might email me or come by the office and say, you made that up. But I footnote these things so I can say, this is the source where I got it from. For 32 years, Jenna's Russ hid. For 32 years, beginning in 1945, no one knew where he was. He was actually in his sister's barn. He was a Nazi sympathizer, and he was afraid that if he just lived his life, that he would be imprisoned, perhaps worse. And so he hid. And he says that what frustrated him the most, he would cry when he would look out through the cracks of the barn and see people riding their bicycles or walking to town or back from town, laughing and giggling, sharing stories. He says, if I had not been discovered, I would have remained in hiding. I'm so happy that this happened. Words could not express. Some of you may be hiding today behind a locked door in your heart. Perhaps you won't let anybody in. Perhaps you won't let Jesus in. Perhaps you won't let the Spirit of the living God in to dispel your worry or frustration. 
Perhaps you need to know that, that there is a solution to whatever difficulty you are facing. We can receive wisdom and support and encouragement, not only from Jesus himself, the power of the Spirit, but by the body of Jesus, which is the church. You are not alone. Don't, don't be disarmed by fear or undue stress. Whatever it is that faces you, you don't have to face it alone. You can face it in the strength and power of God's presence. Lord, we are grateful today that we can spend a little time together. We can worship and sing and raise our hands and pray and affirm your word that is Scripture. And we pray today, oh God, we know maybe it's not us, perhaps it has been in some time in the past, it, it may be us sometime in the future, but there may be someone sitting next to us today that has just bolted the door of their heart. They've closed that door and they don't want to let anything in, any new idea, any new inspiration, any new revelation that you might have. Well, Lord, we want to open ourselves to you today. We want to ask you to help us unlock that door, open the doors, that we might be filled with your presence, with your spirit, and the assurance of both your presence and love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you for listening. This is John Bowling, pastor of Franklin First United Methodist Church in Franklin, Kentucky. Hope that you can visit with us sometime and you can find all the information about our church and how you can be involved at franklinfirstumc.com. If you'd like to financially support this ministry, that would greatly be appreciated. And again, you can find our mailing address on our website. Take care.